At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, the dangers and benefits of antidepressants. We'll speak with P.E. Moskowitz. They wrote about the latest research for the magazine's special issue on drugs. But first, the Senate confirmation hearings for Biden's Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Law professors Joey Fishkin and Willie Forbath will comment on the missing debate over what the Constitution requires. That's coming up in a minute. Senate confirmation hearings on Biden's Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson are underway now. The question and the answers are all predictable. But what should arguments about the court and the Constitution focus on? And who should take part in those debates? For comment, we turn to Joseph Fishkin and William E. Forbath. They're the co-authors of a new book, The Anti-Oligarchy Constitution, Reconstructing the Economic Foundations of American Democracy. Joey Fishkin is professor of law at UCLA. He's written, in addition to lots of law review articles, he's written for the Washington Post and The Atlantic. Joey Fishkin, welcome to the program. Thank you. Great to be here. And Willie Forbath holds the Lloyd M. Benson Chair in Law at the University of Texas, Austin. He's written recently for the New York Times op-ed page and The Atlantic. Willie, welcome. Thank you. Well, please remind us, what is the script for Senate confirmation hearings of Supreme Court nominees? It's very ritualized performance. Who says what? Joey. The nominee says as little as possible. Her supporters say how brilliant she is and what a great person she is. And opponents try to find something that can be some sort of a scandal. But what nobody does is actually talk about the major differences between the two parties' actual views of the Constitution and the law, because that's not part of the script. I remember when John Roberts was testifying before his confirmation as chief justice, he pledged never to forget that, quote, it's my job to call balls and strikes. Judge Jackson said in her opening statement this week, quote, I decide cases from a neutral posture. Nevertheless, Senator Marsha Blackburn, Republican of Tennessee, accused her of having a, quote, hidden agenda and asked if her hidden agenda was, quote, to let violent criminals, cop killers, and child predators back on the streets, close quote. Don't the Republicans have a kind of hidden agenda that is 
a view of what the Constitution requires, what they want the Supreme Court to do? Willie? They do, although our view is we'd all be better off if they put it on the table. And our view is also they're no different from the Democrats in the broadest sense of having a constitutional vision and a set of principles that they're hoping to promote. The Dems do as well. And we're not here to urge a more wide open confirmation hearing process. That might be better, but we don't think that the, the biggest, biggest stakes lie there. We think that it's, it's been a bad wrong ter- turn in our political life as a nation to have these fights about what the constitutional vision should be and what the constitution requires and prohibits in this arena at all. We reconstruct a long, long history during which until roughly the latter part of the 20th century, Americans fought about these questions of rival constitutional visions, rival principles in ordinary politics, in party politics, in campaigns and on the in the halls of Congress or the floor of Congress so that it's self-deluding and it's and it's no good for anybody and, and nor for the court to jam all these hidden clashes into the confirmation process or into the court. Just one footnote here. I looked up where was it that Judge Jackson used the term hidden agenda? It was in her undergraduate senior thesis. But what's going on here is they're looking back for some time when Judge Jackson spoke in a normative voice, like spoke, said things not like how she judges as a judge, because as a judge, she's been very centrist, middle of the road, pretty standard judge. And, you know, there's a sort of frustration on the Republican side that they can't successfully pin her uh, to views that are clearly more liberal than how she has actually acted as a judge. But it's really kind of emblematic of the whole problem with this process, which is we have elevated this idea that judges are sort of the high experts in, they're the only ones who can really be trusted to interpret the constitution for us. And so that just puts tremendous pressure on which people are going to be those great guardians. And it would be uh, a lot better if we viewed interpretations of the constitution as something that all of us do and that politicians, not just judges, uh, have a responsibility to do. Well, we know what Republicans want government to do. They want to protect wealth from redistribution. They want to protect business from regulation and from organized labor. And they say the Constitution is on their side. You say the Democrats today have forgotten that they once had not just political arguments and policy ideas about this, but constitutional arguments on their side in all these fights. What what were the constitutional arguments? Constitutional arguments ran along three great principles. One of them was the Constitution requires government to constrain and prevent oligarchy, hence the title of our new book, that the Constitution requires curbs on concentrated economic power. Why? Because concentrated economic power always turns into concentrated political power and undermines 
political equality and Republican self-rule. And that that was a mainstay of the sort of founding era's thoughts about political economy. Two, the Constitution requires the kind of economic order that sustains a broad, wide open middle class. And three, that it has a principle of inclusion across racial, gender, and other lines. And one of the things that gives a special point to taking the Constitution away from the court, or as Roosevelt said, saving the Constitution from the court, is that these principles don't lend themselves to implementation by the court. They are principles that really call on Congress and lawmakers and the executive branch to implement them. And so there, there's sort of many, many important stakes in shifting our regard for who, who has a special office in laying out what the Constitution requires. You say the Constitution itself requires limitations and, and restrictions on oligarchy and the moneyed aristocracy. Of course, progressives and leftists for a long time have been making kind of the opposite argument that the Constitution, at least the Constitution of 1789, was profoundly anti-democratic. You know, the president is chosen by the Electoral College, not by the popular vote. Senators were not elected, but were chosen by state legislatures. There was no universal suffrage. And of course, we have the Constitution's famous defense of slavery, which we've learned a lot about in the last couple of years, the Fugitive Slave Clause, the protections for the slave trade. Doesn't all that suggest that oligarchy was just fine with the founders? There's two important responses to that, to that point. One is the cross currents at the founding are much more complicated than that simple story. There was a profound anti-aristocratic bent to many of our 1789 founding fathers. There's a lot of, you see it in the prohibition on titles of nobility. You see it even more in efforts like those of Thomas Jefferson and others to break up landed estates so you wouldn't have a few rich plantation owners like we eventually got ruling over large areas of, of each state. And there was at the beginning an important element of we want to prevent an aristocracy, the word they used the most back then, or an oligarchy from emerging. But where you really see this tradition that we're interested in kind of come into its own is in Reconstruction. As we think of Reconstruction, which is the moment where we got the most important amendments to the Constitution, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, we think of that as a moment of ending slavery and promoting civil rights. But the radical Republicans understood that you weren't just going to get equality by prohibiting slavery and having civil rights. You also needed to change the entire political economy of the South. You needed to break up the plantation aristocracy. You needed to redistribute their lands to the former slaves. You needed to build a school system where there wasn't any before. If you wanted Southern white and black citizens to be able to be full citizens in the Republic. So really our tradition is much more complicated than the fair critique of, of some of the elitist elements of what was going on in 1789 would have you think. But the argument in our book is also not an originalist argument. We're making an argument about the constitutional tradition 
that evolved over the course of U.S. history. So Reconstruction is perhaps its most important moment, but there are a number of other key moments throughout where you see people making arguments in politics that are taking up this anti-oligarchy tradition and refashioning it so that it could do something about the oligarchs emerging in their time. Yeah, there certainly is a is a historical uh, trend. Fourteenth Amendment, eighteen sixty six, guarantees equal protection of the laws. The fifteenth introduces a right to vote, something that wasn't in the original Constitution. That was eighteen sixty nine. We get direct election of senators in nineteen twelve. We get votes for women in nineteen nineteen. We get eighteen year old voting in nineteen seventy one. It's interesting. The courts were not part of this at all. This was all regular politics, legislatures. The kind of the climax of this came during the New Deal era when the Supreme Court began a series of rulings that much of FDR's New Deal was unconstitutional, and FDR then proposed a bill to expand the court. His bill would have added six justices, all of them his own nominees, which is perfectly legal then and now. The, the number of justices on the Supreme Court is not set by the Constitution. It's it's set by Congress. It can be changed. It has been changed. A lot of people are saying right now it should be done again. But in 1937, it was called court packing. And that is a fascinating moment in this history. Uh, let's talk about that, that moment when FDR announced he was introducing a bill to expand the Supreme Court, because that just kind of called the question on, well, what do you want from the court? He had just won the biggest election victory in American history, and this was his first big legislative initiative since the landslide of 1936. What was his argument? His argument, it wasn't simply that the, that the court has become a super legislature and is forcing its own policy agenda on the nation. That was part of it. His other part of it was, however, that the New Deal itself embodied a constitutional project of the kinds of rights and the kinds of social insurance that were essential to carry on the constitutional experiment. So he was saying that the people have chosen between two constitutional visions. And what we remember of the New Deal was simply economic policy is no business of the court, but also what we misremember is the notion the New Deal is we're saying it's no business of the Constitution. That's not what they said. And thinking it is what they said has hobbled us liberals and progressives today because it leaves us without a constitutional case, an affirmative case for why the court should get out of the way and why Congress needs to act or we liberals and progressives by and large have bought into the idea the Constitution has nothing to say about economic life. The Constitution has nothing to say about concentrated economic power. It has nothing to say about gross economic inequalities. And the conservatives in the right wing have a robust constitutional narrative, which is all about how the court is upholding the Constitution. And we just say, no, it has nothing to say. We could be saying it has a lot to say and it has work that's cut out for the legislature. Getting back to the hearings this week, we don't expect much from the senators or from the nominee, but what do you think would happen if Judge Jackson at her confirmation hearings, instead of saying, I decide cases from a neutral posture, what if she had said, the constitution requires protecting our Republican form of government from becoming a moneyed aristocracy or oligarchy? What if she had said, I believe we have a constitutional duty 
to ensure that wealth and economic and political power is widely distributed among all the people. What would happen then? See, this might be why you don't put us uh, in charge of being political consultants for how nominees should get through a closely divided Senate. But while I'm not advocating that she make those points, I think it's important for us to open up the space to say that those nonetheless are true, that we don't have a republic if we have too much concentrated economic and political power in too few hands. And that that's why we do need Congress today to continue to enact the kinds of laws from social insurance to campaign finance restrictions that would help restrain the current tendency toward oligarchy. And if we can't do it through the Supreme Court, that's nothing new. That's nothing new. The only time that the courts have ever really been on the side of progressive reform in American history is this sort of brief moment of the Warren court. Much more commonly courts as they are now are the opponents of progressive reforms. And it's against the courts that you have to work in order to uh, uphold the constitution. Yeah, all we would ask from Judge Justice Jackson is to step out of the way, is to encourage her, her fellow justices to stay out of the way and point out that there are constitutional stakes in upholding the kinds of progressive legislation that that we think the Constitution requires. So it's not a heroic role that we would kind of cut out for her, even if we if even if she made the mistake of en- enlisting us as her advisors. <laughs> So we need to challenge the idea that the Supreme Court gets the final word, that the conversation stops after they tell us what the Constitution says. Joseph Fishkin and William R. Forbath are co-authors of the new book, The Anti-Oligarchy Constitution, Reconstructing the Economic Foundations of American Democracy. Joey and Willie, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Now it's time to talk about antidepressants, the benefits and the dangers. For that, we turn to P.E. Moskowitz. They run a newsletter about capitalism and psychology called Mental Health, health spelled H-E-L-L-T-H. They've published in The New Yorker, New York Magazine, Mother Jones, and The Nation, where their article, Breaking Off My Chemical Romance, is featured in the magazine's new special issue on drugs. We reached them today in New York City. P.E. Moskowitz, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Well, you report that 13% of Americans were on some kind of antidepressant in 2018. And of course, that was before the pandemic made all of us more anxious and depressed. I have friends who will tell you that their lives were saved by Prozac or Lexapro or Zoloft. And others who will say they wanted to take them but couldn't because of the side effects. But you write in the nation that antidepressants may often cause more harm than good and that new research has found that the drugs are less effective and more dangerous than many previously believed. So let's start with what we've been told about the causes of depression. The theory that I learned is that it's caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain. So 
it should be understood as something can, can be treated with medication. And we are very lucky that science has discovered SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which correct the chemical imbalance. You say scientists now believe that theory is flawed. Please explain. Yeah, so the interesting thing about the chemical imbalance theory is that most scientists never really believed it. Um, it was a theory, first of all, not a fact. And even the, the guy who, who came up with the theory kept emphasizing this is a theory, this is a theory. Now, most scientists, you know, even the most pro-psychiatric medication uh, scientists acknowledge the brain is much, much, much too complex to be boiled down to a few molecules like serotonin or dopamine or norepinephrine, um, which these drugs like SSRIs affect. So the idea that we actually know what's going on in the brain when we prescribe these drugs is is simply put just fake. Um, and it comes mostly from, from marketing. Um, there was actually a study done about why people think that chemical imbalance is the cause of depression. And uh, the the respondents mostly said that they got that information from, from news reports and TV commercials, not from scientific papers. And, you know, beyond that, it, it goes to the very, the very way we study depression. You know, I quote someone in the story, a researcher who's a, a very pro-drug researcher, pro-prescription drug researcher. And she gives the example of, you know, if you have a toothache and you prescribe an, an opiate pain reliever for the toothache, right? If you study the reduction in pain, you find out a lot about how that pain reduction works, but you find out nothing about the cause of the actual toothache, right? So that that I think is a good metaphor for, for depression too. We don't really know what's going on. Okay, so we don't really know what causes depression, but millions of people say antidepressants help them. So it's worth it for those people to take them, they say, even if we don't understand how or why they work. And you questioned that argument too. Yeah, I mean, I think if if you're really depressed and something works for you, I, I'm not telling everyone to go throw their antidepressants down the toilet or something. But I think that we need a more nuanced and full picture of these drugs because often you only hear the, the positive sides of them, right? So for some people, they do appear to work, although we don't know why. Some scientists say it's mostly placebo, which people kind of scoff at because they don't want to think they could be so greatly affected by a placebo. Um, but, you know, opiates work via placebo. Advil works via placebo. Everything works via placebo. Yeah, I want to talk about placebos. You mentioned in your article for The Nation the program in placebo studies at Harvard University. I never heard of this before. Sounds great. You say they discovered in 2014, this was eight years ago, that a placebo was about 50% as effective as real medication in treating migraines. That means that for every two people who were helped by the real medicine, one was helped by placebo. What are the findings about antidepressants then, we wonder, about antidepressants versus placebo? I googled that. And I got the answer, all the antidepressants work better than a placebo. But how much better? That's, that's the million-dollar question. And most, most prescription drug re research is funded by the prescription drug companies themselves, and they kind of selectively choose what to publish. So what this researcher at the Harvard Placebo Studies Program, Irving Kirsch, did was dig up all the unpublished studies, the ones that prescription drug companies didn't want to see the light of day, and 
he found that when you combined all of those studies, the effect of most antidepressants was very, 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 very small or non-existent on average, right? And that's when we get down into the really nitty gritty of what is a significant difference. You know, they measure it by something called effect size and, you know, is basically like your life improving by two points on the effect scale, uh, a significant enough improvement to warrant antidepressants or to say that they're effective. And then it all gets, you know, really muddled with someone in a study, their effect size, you know, goes up by 20 points. They're sleeping better. Everything gets better on an antidepressant. And then someone else, their effect size does nothing. Like, does that skew the results? So it seems like they're more effective for everyone as opposed to just that one person. It gets really, really complicated. And I think what I wanted to do in this story is not come to a really concrete answer because I feel like that's what so often happens is either people say, these are miracle drugs, you should love them. And if you don't love them, then shut up. Or people say like, these are the most evil things in the world, right? And to me, it's like, we don't actually really know and we should stop pretending that we know. The least we can ask for is a much fuller picture when we're being prescribed them about what what they actually do, the possible side effects they can have, and if they actually work for people. So yeah, let's talk about side effect. I read that the FDA requires that all antidepressants carry black box warnings. What is a black box warning? It's kind of the most serious level of warning that, you know, a drug can make you suicidal or um, increase the chances of that you'll fly into like a murderous rage. I remember this this one time I was prescribed an atypical antidepressant called Wellbutrin, which is very common. And, you know, it came with this humongous sticker on it that said, <laughs> if you start feeling like feelings of murder, murderous anger towards uh, your family or something, like, please discontinue the drug. And like, <laughs> That's like strange. Why didn't my psychiatrist tell me about it? <laughs> uh, so they tell people that, quote, Stopping antidepressant treatment abruptly or missing several doses can cause discontinuation syndrome. What is discontinuation syndrome? It's like any other drug that your brain becomes dependent on. If you smoke cigarettes, if you um, drink coffee even, right? If you suddenly stop doing those things, your brain needs to rebalance its neurons to the absence of those chemicals. So the idea that antidepressants could somehow be different than any other chemical that affects the brain, again, was more marketing than it was science. And now what's coming out more and more is that the typical way of people getting off antidepressants is much too fast. If you go to most psychiatrists and you say you won't, you've been on an antidepressant for a few years and you want to get off, they'll say, cut the dose in half in a week and then stop the next week. And what people are finding is that they have to go down much, 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 much slower. And if they don't, um, and this is something I've experienced personally, there's all of these horrible side effects from quote unquote brain zaps, which makes it feel like your brain is just like a TV that was turned off for a second or something. And like physical pain and uh, anxiety, increased anxiety, all of these things that are really horrible. And if you go, you know, read the forums on the internet where people are are struggling with these things and seeking out help from each other, it's it's just really mind boggling that we don't talk about it more because it's really scary. You conclude that there is an antidepressant industry that is similar to big tobacco in its funding of research and support for academics who favor its profit margins. And you show that research that challenges industry profits gets attacked 
This is research showing that antidepressants are not very effective, as well as research that shows that they are more dangerous and that withdrawal effects can be very severe. Tell us more about the the industry um, and its attacks on its critics. Yeah, so there's a very lucrative industry, and like any other industry that there's money to be made, uh, they're very uh, protective of, of the ability to make money. So we've seen a lot of reporting on this when it comes to things like uh, Oxycontin, right, where doctors were paid on these lavish trips to Hawaii or wherever and given all these kinds of perks to kind of give their stamp of approval on this drug. And the same thing happens with Zoloft and Prozac and all, every other drug that's coming to market. I think it's less that uh, the prescription drug companies are like going and trying to like quash any negative story. And it's more that they're trying to put a positive spin on every single drug that comes to market uh, with their money and with their influence. But I think another another important thing to know is that this isn't just about, you know, a kind of corrupt science, although it is about that too. I think it's also about this over-reliance on the kind of miracle of, of science in this country, right? That we think any new breakthrough is the best thing since sliced bread. And that this keeps happening over and over and over again with uh, mental health medication. Yeah, you're right. There's a history of mass marketing of drugs for mental health ailments that, that we need to remember going back at least to the 50s. Whatever happened to Thorazine? Whatever happened to Milltown? Yeah. These were in the 50s, like the the drugs du jour. They helped everyone calm down. They uh, took the edge off things. And millions upon millions of Americans uh, were prescribed them. Um, at some point, Milltown uh, was one of the most popular prescription drugs in America by far. And then everyone kind of said, whoops, maybe these things aren't so great. They cause people to have severe discontinuation syndromes. People start shaking and they gain a lot of weight. They get dependence on these things. They, it, you know, it has a host of side effects. So then all of a sudden a new miracle drug cropped up and that was benzodiazepines like Xanax and uh, Clonopin and things like that. And Again, it was like, oh, a miracle cure for anxiety and, uh, you know, the general woes of American life. And then surprise, surprise, you know, 10, 20 years later, they're like, oh, whoops, everyone's getting addicted to this. It has horrible withdrawal side effects and then antidepressants, right? And the same thing happens all over again. Um, so it's just this cycle of overenthusiasm, uh, kind of thinking we can cure depression or anxiety with the silver bullet and then backtracking and being like, whoops, these are not as perfect as we thought. You've read a lot of the research on this. What is the research about the effects of going to see a therapist compared to taking SSRIs? There's surprisingly not much research on, uh, like long-term research on which is better, but the little that's out there shows that, you know, continuous therapy is equally effective to antidepressant treatment, if not more so. But the problem is that the, the causes of depression and anxiety are so complex. I mean, we see a rise in it during the pandemic, of course, because people are lonely and stressed and working, you know, crazy jobs and all the rest. and and we try to boil that down to kind of a chemical imbalance or even something that can be worked out in therapy. I mean, can can the, the ravages of this world really be worked out in a therapist's office? Probably not. not. That's not to say a therapy doesn't help, but that we can't really say there's a cure for depression or anxiety 
when the causes of depression, anxiety are things that are kind of out of our control. So, so yes, therapy is as effective as antidepressants, but that's not the whole solution. You know, there needs to be a more holistic answer to, to why we're so depressed and anxious as a society. Let me go back to discontinuation syndrome for a minute here. You write in the nation about your own discontinuation experience. Right. So I had a really hard time about maybe four or five years ago, you know, moved to a new city, was really stressed out in a bad relationship, et cetera, um, and went to a psychiatrist and she put me on Effexor, which is an SNRI, which is very similar to an SSRI. And at first it it's kind of seemed to work. You know, there were like a lots of weird side effects. Um, I gained some weight. There was some sexual dysfunction. Uh, there was, you know, lots of things that that were worrying about it, but it, it quelled my anxiety at least. And then I started feeling a little better. And so I thought, okay, I can get off of this. And I got off. And then a few months later, I just had essentially the worst mental breakdown of my life. You know, I thought I was going crazy that I'd end up in a mental institution. And for a while, I didn't know why. And, and of course there were, you know, many factors that I'm not going to blame it all on, on the withdrawal from a drug, but, um, but as soon as I reinstated that medication, a lot of the symptoms of that kind of mental breakdown went away. Um, you know, like my hands stopped shaking. Um, I felt less uh, crazy, and but I didn't feel back to normal. And the, that's kind of what got me interested in these drugs and whether they're safe or not, because researchers I talked to for this piece, other people I've talked to who have gone through similar things, it's much, much more common than I realized. And that kind of made me think, wait, is this, is this related? And if it is related, then why is no one talking about these possible side effects uh, or unintended consequences? P.E. Moskowitz, you can read their newsletter, Mental Health, spelled H-E-L-L-T-H, online. And you can read their article about the dangers of antidepressants for the nation's special issue on drugs at thenation.com now. Thank you, P.E. This is great. Thank you so much. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. William Broughton is our audio editor. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.